Welcome to the Settle the Matter podcast, where folks sit together and converse openly about their differing perspectives. I am Tom Wells, your host. Grab your beverage of choice and let's settle the matter. All right, here we are with Christopher Cady. I call him Mr. Cady. We are currently in Brighton, Michigan, and we're going to have a conversation today. Um, and before we get going, I want to kind of just hear a little bit from Chris about who he is, um, a little bit about our history together. Um, so my first question is going to be a real simple one, um, Chris, is can you give me three or four or one <laughs> provocative thing about yourself, like something interesting that people might want to hear? It doesn't have to be controversial. Um, I would argue no. I don't think I'm a very interesting person. Um, I tend to live by that. I think it's a Chinese proverb, although a lot of things get attributed to, you know, ancient Chinese secret. For sure. Um, but that notion of pray you live in uninteresting times, because uh, the interesting times are where all the trouble happens. Um, but if I had to list something, I'm a tea fanatic of some sorts. I'm very particular and I'm pride myself on trying a wide diversity of things and well, we could perhaps do at least half a podcast on just that topic of the different teas I've tried and my various criticisms. Um, other things, uh, I suppose I have a strong penchant for idiosyncrasy okay. and fluidity and identity. I, I attribute that to I suppose poor socialization. Am I getting too deep? No. <laughs> All right. Not. Poor socialization in my developmental years, uh, which is problematic at the time. But, you know, you grow up, you learn a few lessons. And I think I've used it to a strength in that it empowers my capacity for empathy and considering other worldviews and lacking that strong base. Nice. So you're from Midland, Michigan. That's correct. Yes. Right? So what would you say were some of the pitfalls of your socialization in Midland, Michigan? Oh, criminy. Is this... Are we doing psychoanalysis now? No, I'm just asking for your, your I mean, if you want to talk about... Opinion. If you want to talk about Midland specifically, Midland mm-hmm. is very a smaller city. I mean, not as small as Brighton here, but Brighton is very specifically like a commute city. Okay. Whereas Midland is designed for people to live, but... Um, I mean, last I checked, they had sunk below 40,000 people. I'm pretty sure the population is declining. It might have gone up recently. I think I heard that. Point is, small place um, and not a grand diversity of demographics. Yeah. Um, very monographic, I guess is the word if I'm talking about demographics, and not a good, not not a good employment base either. Not yeah. a diversity of opportunities. So in terms of just meeting a wide variety of people and finding a demographic, a community, a group, a clique that you can fit in with and sort of call your own social home. Uh, Not viable for a good many people. Yeah, I agree. I live in the Tri-Cities area and we did not fancy Midland when we came here. No. Um, It's nice to visit. They have some lovely sites. I'm especially fond of the uh, nature center out there. Yeah, I'm not. Certainly not against Midland. It's just not our style. Right. Um, I remember when I first met Chris, uh, he was in a very, very fast-paced math class at Delta College with me. Um, I believe you're my pre-calc class, right? No, it was no, college algebra. College algebra. Okay. Which was 
Yeah, that was that was ancient times. I know. That May was, have been ten years was, ago. It was almost. It was twenty fifteen. Oh, it was twenty fifteen. It was okay. my second semester at college, and I started twenty fourteen because oh, this might be a provocative thing. I enlisted in the Navy fresh out of high school, but they kicked me out. <laughs> <laughs> That's moderately provocative. Moderately provocative. You have to give the basic if, reason now. It, no, you no, have no, to the, give the basic. The reason. mystery is what makes it provocative. <laughs> okay, we'll just leave it a mystery. Um, it was a health issue. Yeah. They give yeah. like a they do like two health examinations before, but like a week in to um boot camp or I forget the term they have for it with the Navy but there's like a full day uh, medical examination where you're in and out of tests and rooms and buildings yeah. um, and stuff came up that day and then they put me into separations from there <laughs> like a sheep led to slaughter <laughs> kind of a little bit yeah. I mean that's part of the whole point of that first week especially the first day the first day especially because they keep you awake for I want to say like 40 hours yeah and you have to go at least half as long without eating because they're just trying to wear you down so that if you're that kind of person who will snap, you do so sooner rather than later. Yep. Not that that was the issue here, but just as a, a tangential example of that same concept of weeding out the weak, so to speak. Yeah. So in our interaction in the history, can you think of any notable kind of memories or banter that we've had over the years that kind of stands out in your mind? Yeah, there's two that come to mind. Um, One was... One one of our first interactions, it was during one of the classes, College Algebra. Okay. I don't remember if it was before class or like in the middle of class, but I was reading from a book. I didn't read the whole book. It's a gargantuan book, but it's a year 2000 publication called The Oxford History of Islam. Yes. And you had asked me what class I was reading that for, and I said, it's not for a class, just reading it. And my impression, at least looking back, was that was sort of the moment where you realized I might be an interesting person worth talking to, (laughs) (laughs) worth bringing to Argument Club. Yeah. Um, And then another one, on the note of uh, disagreements, I understand this is uh, but the part of the podcast here, yes. bringing disagreements to the table. There was one time where we were discussing evolution. Yes. And I was adamant that microevolution necessitated macroevolution. And for whatever reason, you could not get on board with that. Like for me, and it remains as clear as day to me that that's a natural conclusion. Sure. Um, I don't know if that's if you've reflected on that any further since then, but. I have, I have, and I think that would be a another podcast topic. Another that's a good, another that's a very, day, that's day. a very good segue to a second podcast. All right, well, so that would be a great argument. Put this audio for that one and put it in the intro. There you go, there you go. So we're gonna get right into it today. I want to have a, a discussion about um, a lot of my discussions with Chris over the years have been about a lot of different topics. I mean, too many. We, yeah, we've probably discussed. Uh, uh, We've discussed topics till two in the morning um, with oh, another gracious. friend of ours named Landon, or oh, or right, later. You're right. Yeah, it has been that late before. Yeah, and 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 I've enjoyed. I love those discussions. I mean, we get into it sometimes. We do have some agreements. We have a lot of agreements actually um, on how we approach ideas and logic. If I can add on that real quick, I think a lot of the agreement is on well, as you said, the logic, because part of, again we've been friends in some capacity for. Eight plus years now. Yeah. So a lot of the reasoning, the rationale, the line of logical progression 
has been sifted out, at least between us. And we keep coming back to the axioms. We do. But the axioms are always non-falsifiable, so we get stuck there. Yeah, we get stuck at the the beliefs that are either self-evident or just simply believed. <laughs> and that that's that's the difficulty with logic, is yeah, if you have faulty axioms, you can end up with David Koresh <laughs> and still use good logic at times. Mm-hmm. Well, let's take a look at the concept today of religious faith or just faith in general. We've done a ton of discussing about this. Mm-hmm. This is probably a point where we've had a lot of our dialogue, some disagreements, um, but we've we've had some great discussions on that. So I'm going to start with just a difficult question. If a God did exist, and we're going to define God this way for the sake of this conversation, and we can actually argue the definition if we want to as well, mm-hmm. a transcendent person not confined to the universe that created the universe and has ultimate power over everything in the universe. So we're just going to go with that definition. We can also argue the definition, modify it. We'll see where the conversation goes. But if a God exists, how would one become convinced that they exist or have faith that said deity exists? So I guess let's just jump right into that. So as you think about that question, how would, when we look about religious faith or as you put it in a text message recently, the epistemology of faith. Epistemology yes. is just another word for um, ways of knowing, the study of knowing. So what are the different ways to know or to believe that there's a deity and how do we um, develop certainty on that point? Right. And, well, even accepting the definition verbatim, the prompt following is, is is its own semantic can of worms. Sure. Um, like, what is it? What's the, if you can't know? Which I'm going to put forward the claim that this definition of God is along with, to my awareness, all functional definitions of God is non-falsifiable. Because if we're defining God as outside the universe and our perceptions are confined to the universe, then... You know, we can't reach out and try to prove or disprove the claim. So we take it as non-falsifiable. From there, how is being convinced different from having faith? And then we got to define, you know, what having faith is, which is, I assume, another prompt we're getting to. But Yes. Um, ultimately, to quit dancing around the issue, <laughs> um, people have their own intuitions, and sort of philosophical razors. Occam's razor is a common one that I think most people have overall. I'm sure we all have our own little domains where we don't go to it, and that's valid. Yeah. Occam's razor isn't the be-all, end-all. But, so to some extent, it's how you grew up and what intuitions you developed from that. And to another extent, it's what you've experienced that you can't fit into... A non like if you've experienced something that's doesn't fit into a non-theistic worldview, not within your brain, right. anyways, then that's going to be what compels you. And also, I mean, I've talked to people, grand diversity people, about their spiritual views. Even the people who are not just atheist but anti-theist. I've got one friend who actively does not want there to be a god. Hmm. And I've told you about him before. He has, on at least one occasion, prayed 
for said God's help. Okay. So, you know, desperation. There's something within him that doesn't want there to be a God, but also kind of like in certain scenarios hopes there is one. And I think everyone has that. And everyone, in my experience, has sort of this intuition that materialism is not adequate to explain reality. Right. Physics and science and psychology won't do it all. And there has to be something more profound. And I think that's valid. I mean, whether or not that's true, that's a separate conversation. Sure. But I think it's valid for people to have that intuition because that's sort of how our brain works. We have things in our brain that we can't explain. And so it's a, it's a natural thing to gravitate towards. So yeah, developed intuition and experiential evidence is ultimately what that question of how do we have faith, how do we become convinced, ultimately what that boils down to. I'll argue that in some cases there can also be sort of a Pavlovian reward system insofar as um, religion provides community and a social group that is a support network, and that can be a strong foundation for people not to abandon their faith, particularly religious faith. Yeah. Now, you mentioned if, if God is uh, transcends the universe, if God, he or she, is a transcendent being, mm-hmm. and is outside the universe and also has power over the universe, you mentioned that we can't go out there and kind of like, at least in a scientific way or any kind of material way, we definitely can't measure God. We can't. Yeah. We can't we can't measure the we can't find the boundaries of God, we can't find the well you know, these different things. But um is there a sense in which if that were true, there there is an opportunity for revelation. Yes, absolutely. So there's an opportunity for revelation. The question would become how would we know what the revelation is? And whether or not the opportunity actually happens. Yeah, because there theoretically could be a deity that has no interaction with humanity. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what the quote-unquote founding fathers, many of them believe. Yes, deism. Which yeah, deism. Yeah. Enlightenment. And so I think that at the end of the day, we have to ask the question, like, if there were a deity like this, what kinds of revelation would, if it were to have revelation, what kinds of revelation would be relevant? How would a human, how would a human identify revelation? Right. I mean, I can't even like, I can't even observe something like right in front of me right now and be a hundred percent certain that it's accurate. Yeah. Because I could have blurred vision. I could have uh, a lack of attention for a half second, and something significant happened in that half second. You could right. Have a hallucination. I could have a hallucination. You could be I could living be, in a matrix-like simulation. <laughs> I could be living in a matrix-like simulation. So then the question becomes: all those things being true. How would one discern if there was any kind of like revelation of the reality of this transcendent thing Hmm. beyond us groping around in the dark and trying to, what would that look like to you if it, if said thing did exist? Um, well to me or in general, (laughs) either to you or in general, maybe to you is more interesting. It's my belief that. The creator reveals themselves to different people in different ways because different people are different. Okay. So, but to answer that question more constructively, um, it again goes back to what we've established with how people become convinced and have faith. And it's a matter of you have to experience something 
that, number one, you can't explain flat out, and number two, has some significant measure of congruity, that's a very particular phrasing, but, you know, need that sometimes, yeah. some particular measure of congruity with your established notion of divinity. Whether or not you believe in divinity, you have some concept of what it's supposed to mean. And so there's got to be some parallel between the experienced and the learned in order for your brain to make that connection. So you almost have to have a preconceived notion of what that deity is, you in do. a way. Now, whatever revelation you might occur can equally challenge that preconception. It's not that it doesn't have to be one-to-one, but you've got to have like a, a tangent point, some point where what you're experiencing and what you can understand interact. Right, and I think that, like, for me, I, I wonder about that because I think about how if there were a creator and... Um, that creator, it would make it would make rational sense to me just based upon my experience as a as a human with creative power. I do have some creative ability. It would make sense to me that if there were a creator, that its creation would reflect its nature. That would make sense. Um, it's hard to imagine well, something having a nature as a person. And not having any kind of reflective quality. So, like, if it makes something, it makes sense that it would it would uh, reflect what that creator wants, what that creator is able to do, what that creator desires. If it has desires, if it has wants, if it has abilities... So if it doesn't have wants, desires, or abilities, we would probably not think of it as an intelligent being. We wouldn't use that terminology. We might think of it more like a Star Wars force. We might think of it more like uh, the Big Bang Theory. You know, we would we may think of it that way. But if it, if it were an intelligent being that sat outside and kind of, sort of like orchestrated the cosmos with some sort of intelligent purpose or motive. It would make sense that we, its creation, would um, reflect those characteristics, which might be the connection that you're thinking about. I disagree that intelligence requires desire. It may not require desire, but... Well, when you talk about what God wants... Let me go off on a tangent here, just to try and illustrate... How I am interpreting this argument you're putting forward with the notion of a creator. Yes. And I'm going to challenge that definition of God that you put forward here. um, Because this is how I generally view the concept. Is an entity, infinite in nature, sentient, and responsible for creation. Which certainly has a good many parallels with the definition you put forward. And I do want to come back to that definition. I'm not trying to, you know, derail things here. Yeah, yeah. But, um, a more succinct way of putting that is the one who defines truth. Anything that is true is true because the Creator wills it to be true. Okay. And that means anything the Creator wants, the Creator wants because the Creator wills their self to want it. Sure. Anything which the creator is the creator's nature is the creator's nature because 
the creator wills that nature. And so, basically what I'm getting at is, I find these concepts of God, what God wants, what God likes, what God doesn't like, is rather non-applicable. Because for us as humans, what we will to do typically precipitates from what we want and what we enjoy. Whereas, with my understanding of a creator anyways, that's flipped. And that is a brand of intelligence and sentience that I have no experience with and don't know how to fathom. And so that goes to sort of, again, the non-falsifiability, the unknowableness of God. But it makes these conversations about what God would want from creation very difficult for me to navigate. Sure. I think it's hard to conceive of a creator that has that kind of difference in how it processes reality. Absolutely. Because yeah. it's 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 counterintuitive to how pretty much all intelligent life are. Yeah, we literally yeah. do not have the mechanisms to fathom that. I mean, you can you, the clo- you 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 could imagine somebody like Spock or a Vulcan being in that category. <laughs> you even then, I mean, almost dispassionate. Dispassionate, but I'm not convinced God is dispassionate. That hasn't been my experience with God, anyways. And equally, a Vulcan is still bound by logic. And the Creator, well, again, the Creator defines truth. The Creator defines logic, and the Creator is thus not bound by it. Well, it could be semantics then that we're talking about. Very much, and that does boil down to so many things. The concept of want could be anthropomorphizing how yeah, God. Yeah, and I've discussed this with various, as I've discussed with various friends about their various spiritual views. It's like at a certain point between God, fate, the chaos of nature, at a certain point, the lines between those three start to blur. Right, and you end up talking about the same fundamental oneness of reality. Yeah, so a big difference here is that, you know, as a, a in the realm of Judeo-Christianity, Islam, most of the major world religions, mm-hmm. uh, the Western religions at least, yeah, uh, God is a personal God. So God in some way uh, created humankind's in... In his image. In his image. And so we can... that The reason I was bringing that up when you, you brought up the idea of you have to have something in your mind that connects your experience... Is that in the in the Judeo Christian worldview and the Muslim worldview and actually you know the the Mormon worldview and what many other worldviews mm-hmm. the that connection is created into you because we're created in God's image and so then our experiences so our experiences with God's actions are intuitive because we already have a sense of a moral conscience yeah so when we see justice enacted we agree we're like oh that makes sense. When we see people do things wrong and, and, and God acts in a certain way that it is wrong, then we go, that makes sense because we already felt that way. Right. So we have this, we have this embedded, uh, I don't know what the word is, we have this embedded roadmap to recognize the activity of God because we were created in the image of God. So that's why I think that that's, that connects those two dots mm-hmm. that you were talking about. Yeah. And so that's... That's where I was getting at with the idea of it would make sense that the creator would implant something in his creation or her creation, if it was an arbitrary God or its creation or whatever else, if it has no gender, 
it, it would make sense that that planting turns a light bulb on to what's real for those that are observing. Yes. In that creation. It would make sense. But it also does run, first of all, taking that on what it is, I do agree with it in some capacity insofar as it goes back to what I was discussing on every, virtually everyone having some fundamental awareness of a spiritual reality. Sure. But I would also argue that how various peoples, particularly across cultures, and particularly across time, if you go through the historical record and at least attempt to glean from that, which admittedly is a rough, sure. imperfect process, um, I think you'll see a spectacular diversity in how people approach the concept of divinity. Mm -hmm. And so, if you want to claim that a fundamental awareness of spiritual realities is indicative of that spiritual reality, I think that can be a legitimate claim, and it's not something I have any basis to argue against. However, I think that based on how widely people are able to do that, you're left with very little to say about that spiritual reality other than it's there. <laughs> right. Which is not a satisfying extent and certainly not enough to claim a sentient entity or a person as you describe it, um, which I, I'm not on board with that word. I feel like person, maybe I'm just too... I'm thinking too narrowly here, but my concept of person has a lot of constraints on it. Like yeah, a person's a very human thing, and I don't conceive of the creator being a very human thing. Right. I, I think the word person philosophically generally refers to something that has an intelligent, conscious identity. It doesn't necessarily... I mean, the, right. the yeah. Hindus would, 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 would uh, refer to their gods as persons, for example. Or the ancient Greeks would have referred to their gods as persons. Right. Not people, not humans, right. but they are a person. Like, okay. they have a, a... I mean, sentience actually is a pretty good... I think saying that something is sentient is probably Although, equivalent in some sense to saying yeah. it's a person. I mean, my border collie is in some sense a person. In some it's sense, distinct, yeah. It's distinct from all other border collies. It has a unique identity in terms of its personality... Um, in terms of its experiences, how it responds to its experiences, its relationship with other beings, and so on and so forth. So yeah, I think uh, that's going on to another one. Give me some examples of types or definitions of faith that you don't find compelling. And this could be, this could be within the realm of religious faith. This could be, we've talked a lot in our conversations about how Science, in a lot of ways, implores some yeah. suspect, suspect types of faith or belief or or measurements of reality. Um, and I think not only science, but uh, religion, um, civil rights movements, moral movements, uh, political movements. I mean, any of those movements have elements of trust and faith in ideas or things that are transcendent. So what are some types of faith that you don't find compelling? You can be specific with, with uh, movements, groups of people, things you've recently heard, people you personally know, although don't name them. Right. Um, 
The one that most immediately comes to mind, and this is a religious faith, or at least I experienced, I witnessed it through a religious context, um, and it's, it was this expression I saw saying, faith is not believing that he can, it is knowing that he will. And that agitated me deeply, because that was like the antithesis of how I experience faith. And I don't, I don't think it's faith, I think it's self-righteousness, cocksurety, what's the, what's the expression here? Sure. Overconfidence. Overconfidence. Yeah. Could be overconfidence, Could be depending over upon the but, meaning of those words. Yeah, I mean, yeah. the notion that you know what God is going to do. You know what God wants, and that's your faith. That's not faith. That's an abject lack of humility. Sure. We've just spoken on the unknowability of God. So for you to come in and say, I'm, I've decided this. Another expression I've heard is, God is on my side. Again, that's backwards. You're supposed to be on God's side. And yeah. the difference between those two is who owns the side. Yeah, I think one is one is. Uh, I think it's possible to to have a notion that God supports a human mm. and is on the side of a human, but there's a lack of humility in in saying God is on my side. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, and, in the New Testament, Paul says, "If God be for us, who could be against us?" And I think the meaning of that's very different than what you're saying. Yeah, um, as an example from the Christian faith, it's a different meaning. But I think, yeah, I think that you see a you see a, a lion's share of people, especially in the United States, in the political oh, yeah, movements absolutely. going on right now, who believe that God is on the side of their particular political party, political <laughs> political candidate, and so I think you do hear a lot of. In my mind, that would be using the name of the Lord in vain. Yes, I agree. <laughs> that would be the definition of that terminology. And, well, it's. I think it goes. Well, I think it goes to a lack of humility, as I stated. I also think it goes to people being unwilling to challenge their own worldview okay. overall. And so, if you aren't in the position, or you just don't have the emotional-slash-cognitive capacity to truly meditate on how you might be fundamentally wrong on what you believe, then you're going to take it as absolute truth. If you're going to take it as absolute truth, then, well, the Creator defines truth. So, everything I believe is therefore what God wants. And I understand that logic. It's just deeply flawed logic and very deliberately constrained. And so that's a bit of arrogance and a bit of willful ignorance. So do you think God is unknowable? Yes, asterisk. <laughs> <laughs> What's the asterisk? The I mean, because I, I believe God's knowable. Mm. I don't think God's any... Well, let's put it this way. I believe that my wife is knowable, too. Okay. Okay, but I don't fully understand my wife yet. Okay, yeah, that okay. So, So in that sense, my wife is knowable, meaning I have some kind of relationship with my wife. So, there is, there's a... And there's a trust developed between me and my wife. I believe that I can have that that kind of a relationship with God, although my ability to understand God is a lot lower than my ability to understand my Very wife. Very much so, right. But, but, I, but I don't think that eliminates the possibility that I would know God and have a relationship with God. Yes, and I am of the position that you and I have 
uh, that people can have experiences which are strongly conclusive of the notion that there is a god. I don't think you can ever prove it outright, but it can be certainly the most convincing argument available to you. But we've spoken about that before. It's yes, hard it's hard to prove anything now, outright. Now, <laughs> in some sense it's impossible. There's some Which level of doubt with anything. It goes we, back to that notion of epistemology and you say can is God knowable? Well, what does it mean to know? But that's its own can of worms. Relational knowledge versus intellectual knowledge. Smarter men than you and I have chewed on it for much longer than this here podcast, and That's we've correct. gone nowhere with it. Yeah. Um, so what I want to get at is, yes, you can know that there is a God, but what about that God you can know? I'm not as convinced on. So I have, in my experience... With the Creator, I find the Creator to be a compassionate entity, in that I have observed the Creator exercising compassion, or I believe I have. Mm -hmm. Now, whether that means that the Creator is compassionate, or that means my fundamental understanding of compassion is flawed, I don't know compassion when I see it, not in the divine sense anyway, or that means that the Creator's supposed acts of compassion are a ruse meant to lull me into a false sense of security for some retribution later on, or some combination of all those things, or some other interpretations that I have yet to conceive and may never conceive. So, when you get to that, I find myself in the position that God is knowable, but nothing about God is knowable, which is an uncomfortable position, because if nothing about God is knowable, then how do you know God well, at what, all? What are you actually knowing? Exactly. Is the question. You're knowing a fantasy. Maybe. In some, no, in some sense you have to. Because again, that, I mean, the true, God is unknowable. So if you're going to be in a position where you believe God, then you have to construe some, for, some image of what that God is. Because otherwise you just can't, and that's true with everything. That's not just true with God. If you're going to navigate the politics of your civilization, if you're going to navigate your industry, your trade and specialization, you have to have a conception of what that is so you have a roadmap to move along. And this goes back to my problem with that um, self-confident brand of what is called faith, is that the fact that we need that image that assumption in order to navigate our belief in God, when we can equally be confident that that assumption is flawed, makes us incumbent with the responsibility to challenge that assumption. And I place phenomenal spiritual importance on the act of doubting, of questioning things, mm -hmm. uh, and investigating, because it's, well, it's the humble thing to do. When you're in a position where you know, you've, for whatever reason, believe in the Creator, whether that's just what you grew up with, or whether you've had some profound experience that moved you to it, the fact that so much about the Creator, and arguably everything about the Creator, is unknowable puts you in a position to say, okay, if I want a relationship with this Creator, and if I want to improve my understanding of the Creator, then I have to start picking apart what I have 
because I know it's flawed. Well, now this is where we kind of get into some more disagreement, which I think will be good for us to hash this out, is that I think that um, in in my worldview, there is a sense in which uh, if I were to imagine a creator, in my definition of creator, or even your your definition of creator, would it be irrelevant on which? Any, any being that is responsible for the creation of the universe is beyond my comprehension <laughs> in many in many ways however if there was going to be a relationship between a being that powerful that quote unquote massive that quote unquote large even though it may not be material or or flesh and blood of course um I feel like that that relationship would have to be driven by the more powerful being. And here's what I mean by that. Like, if I take like a minuscule being that exists on earth, like an ant, the ant is not able to very easily initiate a relationship with me. You know, it's just like, if I have no interest in that ant, then that ant is dead. That ant is ignored. That ant is exterminated. So if there's a deity that is of this nature, it makes sense he'd have to initiate that relationship with measly, tiny little ants on this one particular planet. So let me let me finish on. Like I think one of the big questions then would become, if that's the case, I think that that it's possible that God is knowable beyond what you're saying, um, because if. If it were on on my end to initiate that and understand and search out and 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 kind of figure out who this deity is by using all these clues about looking at the cosmos over thousands and thousands of years of human history and the advance of telescopes and so on and so forth and then trying to understand the moral laws around me and try to discern what this deity wants me to do if anything or trying to discern what's my meaning and purpose in life. But if I imagine that this creator wants a relationship with me and is able to initiate it and give me the revelation I need, give me the clues I need, and give me the cues that I need in order to have a sense of actual love, love that I'm delivering and love that I'm receiving. So like, so from my perspective as a Christian, obviously, you know, I believe that there was a, an initiation, a creation, there was an intention in creating humankinds because God wanted a relationship with them. So that's a real part of the created intention. Forget the word wants. It's a part of the design. And that and so then I go down another angle, which is this angle, which is that as a in my worldview, you know, God made an appearance on earth, right? So that's that that's that whole um that's a whole nother can of worms. Um, and then People like me claim to have ongoing experiences with the Creator. You know, emotional experiences, answers to prayer, um, the ability to change beyond our natural mind, um, beyond our even comprehension to make changes in who we are and what we do. Um, and then there's little superpowers that I I think we get access to that are unique, not because we have any superpower, but because we're connected to the Creator. Superpowers like being the ability to love my enemy. To be able to love people that don't love me back. The ability to show kindness to people that hate me. You know, those are the kinds of superpowers that, say, Jesus advertised or other people advertised throughout the history of Christianity. Or, And I'm not aware of many other religions that promote that particular idea. But the idea of 
that's a particular superpower. So that, that helps me to think about maybe I'm transcending my reality here. Maybe there's like, there's some sort of tangible power. There's some sort of tangible experience that's ongoing that allows me to transcend the normal human experience. And I get that by this connected, this relationship with this deity. And then of course, in the ultimate, the ultimate reality is that I get to escape death, which is like, that's the ultimate, like step up from what, what we see is kind of rational. It's totally irrational to believe that you'd overcome death. No one's ever seen it happen. Um, except people testifying that it happened one time in history that I'm aware of. Um, and so I think that those kind of like triggers about no ability is how do I know that there's a deity? It's this ongoing experience. It's this ongoing ability to transcend the normal human condition. It's this ongoing ability to have tremendous sense of meaning and joy amidst tremendous suffering and pain. It's all these, and then ultimately the ability to overcome death. So I don't think it's, I think where we, where we come at it from a different perspective is that I don't know that there would be much of a value in faith without some sort of understanding the trust that the faith that you're discussing is an intellectual faith in the existence of a DA. It's not a relational trust in an actual person. So that's a notable difference between the I two of us. I very much disagree. Okay. So how is it different? In that that's, not what I was, or not what I was attempting to say at any rate. So how do you view it as a relation or how do you uh, see faith as like a relational connectedness to the deity? Through doubt. Through doubt. Okay. Yeah. Explain that more. Because you know, that's what you're trying to do. You are recognizing that you don't understand and you're not just quitting right there. And you're not just saying, well, I can't understand. Therefore, okay. it's not worth doing. You're right. First of all. This comes with all virtue. Virtue by definition is valuing something other than yourself, above yourself. You're not acting with virtue if you're not doing that. Sure. And it's why I say that humility is the foundation of virtue. Because doing that is an intrinsically humble act. So, at least as I perceive it, and again, perhaps... I'm flawed in my conception of this, but I pursue an intellectual understanding of the Creator because I want to understand the Creator. And first of all, that want is on its own a personal investment because I don't have to, and I know lots of people who don't. Oh, sure. And additionally, I mean, I never feel more cared for by my peers than when they want to understand me and what I'm experiencing. And so in chewing on the notion, so to speak, and mulling over your understanding, you are attempting to build that relationship, to know the person you are Attempt, again, attempting to interact with. And it and my purview, that's an impossible task. But I think that the fact that it's impossible doesn't make it, you know, not worth your time, I think. So but, how do you tell the difference between a god of your imagination and an actual deity you're interacting with? 
Like if I spend exerted amounts of time or significant amounts of time meditating, thinking about God, it's, in, it's really easy for a fantasy. In some ways you don't. Um, and this goes back to what I said about you have to have some conception of the creator, even recognizing that that conception is flawed. And additionally, uh, I forget the additionally, never mind. But isn't that, isn't that in some, so wouldn't that conception. Like thoughts going on in my head right now. Oh, that's fine. Wouldn't that conception then probably be um, well, of likely, of, couldn't it likely be of your own making? What yes. What do you think? Some of it has to be. And that goes back to why the, goes back to the creator being unknowable. You can't. You can't believe in something without a model of it. You believe in models. And where do you get the model? From your experiences. Or okay. that's where I get mine anyways. Right. So then I think the challenge there is then then that, okay. that necessitates the idea that everybody would have a deity of their own making in the end. We're talking about this notion of knowing God, of having a relationship with God. So and trusting or having faith. Yeah. All of this is counterintuitive to the observable reality if we accept that there is a God, which you and I do, albeit in different natures. Yeah. All of this goes against the observable reality that God obfuscates himself. That God makes himself non-obvious. And so if we're talking about Oh, God wants you to have a relationship with him. God provides evidence to do that. God provides revelation, which I don't disagree with. Sure. But I think that all of that has to be taken with quite a lot of salt. If well, we're going to equally provide merit to the fact that God makes themselves non-obvious and obscure. I think he makes himself, uh, yeah, non-obvious is fair. I think that uh, you can you can ask a question though if you believe if you take one basic axiom if you take one basic axiom uh, the one basic axiom that the creation which includes the cosmos the earth humankind animals mm -hmm. uh, the observable cosmos if you take the axiom that the observable cosmos is a has substantial clues into God's nature and attributes. If you just take that one axiom, you already know a lot about God. So, like for it's example, old axiom though. Well, not really, because I guess really. If you take two axioms, let's take two then. <laughs> just keep adding axioms. I'm just saying, if you take if you take two axioms, and so you have to you have to, and one axiom would be that, and then the second one would be which complexifies it. If you add the Christian axiom of, I think that I think that the axiom that what a creator's creation reflects its nature is is pretty self-evident. But when that nature is infinite, it's a drop in an ocean. It might be a drop in the ocean, but it's at least it's at least gives enough of what it at least displays what that creator wants its creation to see of what it is. I take that position and return it to my position of the creator reveals themselves to different people in different ways. When you say that the God is infinite, the creator is infinite, do you mean infinite in space, infinite in qualities, infinite in... Can a creator have only one quality and have it in infinite measure? Potentially. So I'm that, more referring to lack of quantifiability. Transcends quantifiability. What's quantifiability mean? 
confined space and time. Space and time is quantifiable in that we can measure it. Okay, we can so number it. We can perform calculations with. Can it. an infinite being, in the sense of time, space, so on and so forth, have a finite amount of qualities? I mean, in theory, we know from mathematics. In yes, in theory they can. Yeah, <laughs> I don't. You're going. You're going somewhere with this. Take me there. Well, no, I'm just saying that. It, it, I'm saying that when you yeah. say infinite, that's a vague term because it the is term, a vague term yeah. the term infinite doesn't. Well, it's because the, there's so much I don't know. <laughs> yeah, the catch-all, the catch-all phrase "God's infinite, so we can't know Again, Him" implies that He doesn't have knowable traits. Again, I have to assume that in the model of my brain, because I can't know it outright. <laughs> right, but I think that assuming that God doesn't have knowable traits is 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 not. I mean, they're not logically. They don't. One doesn't logically follow from the other. I suppose I'm not saying that God doesn't have knowable traits. I'm saying that your knowledge of those traits cannot be beyond a doubt. And you have an obligation to conduct doubt. Oh, certainly. But therefore, I mean, it's functionally unknowable. It's effectively unknowable. Maybe you do know it, but the fact that you're left in this position where know it or not know it, you have to treat it as if you don't know it. And, I mean, for all intents and purposes, you don't know it. <laughs> right, and that's why, you know, Jordan Peterson talks about the Logos a lot, which is the, the ancient Greek concept of the the merging of the doctrine of the forms in the real world. I mean, that's what it is. But it's it's uh, it's the idea of the, the perfect form land and the earth and the Logos is the the unity between. We've, we've had arguments about language and the significance uh, of language. We always will, and yeah, everyone always Everyone will. will. But because language is a model, it's not the real thing. It's not the real thing. It's one of the best tangible examples of that. Yeah, and tangible being the operative word there. Yeah, so, so I think uh, one of the things I was getting at is that if you take that axiom you, and you start to go, all right, well, are there things that I can reliable? And then you take the second axiom, which is there's been a corruption so when we look at when we look at the nature of the creation, we're looking at it through like a clouded lens. But one thing, one thing that, for example, um, I can look clearly at the idea that murder seems wrong, <laughs> but I can also look clearly at the idea that people still murder. Yeah. So so there's this there's this a, there is injustice in the world, but there is still a concept of justice that there's a locus of agreement on that in all worldviews, almost yeah. all worldviews, except for oh, okay. extremely deviant. And so I, that, I look at that and I go, why can't I see that that's reflective of a deity? And then I can look at specific things like love. We talked about all these metaphysical principles, uh, kindness. You, you mentioned compassion, right? Mm-hmm. So I can look at these, these things that move us, that seem real, that seem consistent with our experience. They seem to be kind of insurmountable. Like I can't, I can't even like, I can't not have them in a sense, right? So I can't me, even not have them. So let me pose this to you then. If we're taking this notion of, well, our experiences with creation and perhaps with the creator in, I'm not going to say direct, but more direct aspect through revelation um, is indicative of the nature of the creator such that we are empowered to know aspects of the Creator. Let's take that. What then do we infer about the Creator from that 
observable reality that the creator obfuscates themselves. Well, one example would be that there are certain things that if we do them, there will be a negative consequence for them in this life, at least that. So if I look and go, uh, I mean, I think I can make a solid case that if I murder multiple people, then it's very likely that I myself will be murdered. I increase my probability of being you murdered. You are increasing the net amount of murder in the world. Even well, I'm, well, not just that, but even in there's very few places I can go in the world and freely murder and not eventually be murdered by a person or a government, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And so there's there's sort of a natural consequence. You know, all religions understand the idea of a natural consequence to certain behaviors. If I lie all the time, then I will not be trusted and I will not have friends. If I there's there's like these natural kind of like consequences for certain behaviors that seem to be implicit they're almost they're almost on the level of we talked about in a text recently they're almost on the level of gravity they seem to be laws that that though they don't they can't be measured the way gravity's measured um, with with mathematical formulas but they can be measured qualitatively so what would you say God's obfuscation says about God? In the context of what I'm observing? Yeah. I would say that God has... Perhaps a better way is the lack of obviousness. Like, why wouldn't God make himself obvious? What does that say about the Creator? I think it says that God wants a create. Well, I could make a guess. Make There's a, guess. a thousand different answers, right? Make a guess. Make a guess I, for I, me. I would make a guess that perhaps God is looking for authentic love from his creation. Okay. And, what, and so he's looking for his creation to seek him. And what needs to happen for that guess to become knowledge? From which guess? From that guess you just gave me. So what would make it for me, Tom Wells, for that to move from... A guess to knowledge, because that's what we're talking about. How do, what makes aspects of God knowable? Well, I think what would make the aspects of God knowable is is always going to be within the context of me as a creation. Meaning, I'm not going to be able to sit up as a co god and observe God as another god. Which would be nice if you could, right? right? <laughs> or, or, a, or a higher god to observe God as a lower god. Oh, that's I'm, a bit. I'm that's always too much for me. Yeah, I don't trust I, myself <laughs> enough. I'm gonna. I'm always gonna be viewing God within the spectator box. (laughs) I'm always gonna be viewing any kind of deity within the context of being created by it. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like asking the question: How can my six-month-year-old observe me when they're six and I'm a grown man? I mean, it's it's that's that's an interesting question. But but I think it's what I'm getting at is that when it moves, I can I can observe if I take that axiom, I can observe certain qualities of God. 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 There's pain. I have pain. I have this experience of pain. I have the experience of retribution. We're going off the rails here. Yeah. I want to keep this one in, because I think this is going to drive at the heart of the current topic. We can move on to another topic if we so please. But you put forward the guess that based on your observation of God's obfuscation, that God wants his creations, or at least his sentient creations, to actively pursue and seek a relationship with that God, rather than it just being given as an alternative. Well, it is given too. I think there's another there's another aspect okay. to it. There's another. But 
Obviously, there's another guess there, and the other guess is that when when humankind fell, there was a separation between God and humankind. So that's another guess. Okay. And there needed to be a redemptive process. So based on, and I'm going to keep it on the straight and narrow here, based on that guess, based which in turn is based on God's obfuscation, that God wants us, humanity, to seek out God and seek a relationship with him, what further observation would be re- theor- hypothetically required to elevate that guess to a point of knowledge? Well, the, probably the best answer to that in the Christian worldview and my worldview would be, which is, you know, I'm calling it a guess, even though I'm convinced of it, but a guess philosophically, right? Mm-hmm. Is that what's one of the first things that happened after the fall of humanity when, when, when God and man and woman had an unhindered relationship in, in the Christian narrative, for example, he created them. He did not create them. He was not in obfuscation when he created them. Okay. There was no division. Right. He was obvious to them at that point. When the fall happened, he gave humankind a choice, right? Yes. Okay, so what's the first thing that occurs now that he is, there is a division between God and man because of this act that was created against God. There's now a division. There's a lack of reconciliation is the term that would be used, right? Mm-hmm. And there's a need for redemption. Well, the first thing that occurs is Cain and Abel are bringing offerings right away. I mean, Cain is bringing, going, grabbing some grain and bringing it to God and trying to bring an offering. Abel is killing an animal to try to bring an offering. And so there's a, there's a, there's a sense immediately that there needs to be some kind of retribution and reconciliation for what's been done. Did God make any indication that he wanted Cain and Abel to do that? He did. Okay. He did. So, so the first thing that happens, if you look at the story, whether you believe it's a myth or not, is Adam and Eve, when they fell, mm-hmm. they hid from God. It says they hid in the garden, and if you remember, they covered themselves with fig leaves. I don't remember. I haven't okay. read much of Scripture. So anyway, he covered, they, they, as soon as they fell and decided to do this, this thing they weren't supposed to do, they hid and covered up. God went looking for them in the garden. He went seeking them. And when he found them, he took off their fig leaves and he covered them with an animal skin, which to our knowledge is the first death of an animal. Which all throughout now the narrative of the Judeo-Christian tradition, there's a concept of without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. So God began with redemption right away. And so I think that they may have understood an animal needs to be killed for my shame to be covered. That was the first sign of there needs to be a, a sacrifice. Something has to take the punishment because of my nature. And so that's the whole narrative of Christ, right? That's the whole narrative of the Old Testament sacrificial system. It's the whole narrative of Jesus is that exact narrative. So who needs to take the punishment for your nature? Uh, Nobody can take the punishment for my nature other than Jesus. So what's the point of killing the animal? (laughs) Well, the animal is only a type of what's to come. It's a foreshadowing. I mean... Foreshadowing. And that's how it's described in the Old and New Testament, for example. It's it's, It's a foreshadowing of the need for... Um, the only blemishless sacrifice is God himself. So I think that that's, that's, the, that's the narrative of, of the guess you're talking but about. But where does that need come from? Where does what need? The need for blood. The nature of God. 
Okay. <laughs> there's not a culture in history. If you even look at it, you can observe it. There's not a culture in history that hasn't engaged almost an animal. There's not, almost not a culture in history that has engaged in some form of animal sacrifice to appease deities. There's not a culture in history that yeah, hasn't killed animals for sustenance. I agree with that. But it's there's, a, there's often a religious connotation to it because I think people recognize... And have a concept of guilt. Okay, well where this has taken us is to scripture as an axiom for faith. Well, no, not necessarily. I think I mean, it's... your answer to what would elevate the guess to a point of knowledge. And the answer to that scripture? is, well, no, because there's two types of revelation. There's general revelation, which is just me observing my surroundings. I don't know that I can jump from the guess... To a more specific understanding of God without some kind of specific revelation, which could be God speaking audibly to me, which could be a prophet speaking audibly to me, which could be a display of wonder that reveals something to me. It also could be a codified written document. It but also could be a number of other things. You can hear a prophet and say, this guy is crazy. You can. You can experience a divine vision and say, I must be hallucinating. But if I hear a prophet that accurately predicts the future for six straight years, I'm more likely to believe something he says later. <laughs> Fair enough. Right? So, <laughs> in that case, what legitimizes scripture in your worldview? Um, I don't think that I could ever prove that scripture is true. And I mean, that's again, not... we've established that proving is a moot concept. Yeah. So, what legitimizes scripture in my view? Um... I think that in, in all of my musings, like you had talked about, we're coming full circle to your original statement here. You had talked about how there needs to be, in order to recognize any kind of movement of a deity or understand reality in mm -hmm. the context of a deity, there has to be a preconceived understanding of, of who that deity is so you can recognize what you're seeing, right, mm -hmm. is what you're asserting. I think that, I, I mean, I think that that's implanted it's rational for me to believe that the creator has implanted that in the creation because the creator made the creation. And so, and I think I have a rational mind given by my creator. So I'm able to observe certain aspects of the creator. So then what I seek out is I seek out a meta narrative, like a story that best describes what I naturally see. And to me, the Judeo Christian story is the meta narrative and the reason why I think it's the meta narrative is because I think it best describes what humanity has already observed. Okay. So, so that doesn't that doesn't imply that it's inerrant. No, that doesn't imply that it's it's the only meta narrative. But it's a legitimate position. It's a legitimate position. So then I then I go to the next level and go. I also look at its force. You know, we already talked about that. Mm -hmm. Its influentialness in history. It's clearly the most influential book in history as far as number of people that read it, sell it, languages it's translated to, so on and so forth. I think that that's an, at least a notable idea that it resonates It resonates with more people in the world than any other book ever written. I mean, there's no other book that resonates with more different types of people, literally every nation, every right. socioeconomic class, every race, every ethnicity. Um there's no other book that even like scratches the surface on that level of being a meta narrative. I think I could actually prove that it is the meta narrative for humanity. It's the only codified book that you could even put forth as a possible meta narrative for all humans. 
And so to me, that's like, okay, that might be an interesting definition of what scripture is. Okay. You know, like what's the meta narrative? What's yeah. the meta narrative empirically? And that's a legitimate position insofar as it's understandable. Right. Um, allow me to disagree. That's fine. Um, oh, yeah. No, and that's, no, that's why I bring it up because that's the point of this podcast. Yes, it is. I think so, you should disagree. And I am going to disagree. You should. So on the notion of it, well, you're, you've had two premises there. Yes. One being that it is the most sensible narrative for you. Sure. Would you like to rephrase that? That's fine. Okay. I'll go with that. I'll grant most that Most sensible one. narrative for you. And second being that the, the force you observe from it on humanity legitimizes it. Maybe, maybe even saying it's the most powerful narrative. Okay. So... On the first point, my disagreement is that I don't share that intuition. And fair sure. enough, I haven't read a lot of scripture. But I haven't read zero. Sure, And sure. I've probed at it a few times. And when I've probed at it, I've had a very unsatisfying experience. It could be that I need a more holistic understanding. Sure. And I'm approaching it from too much of a reductionist standpoint. Sure. That is my penchant, and I'll admit to that flaw. And you've said before that it took three read-throughs of the Bible before you felt you really understood what it was saying. It's a very complex, long book. And I don't doubt yeah. that in the slightest. Yeah. And that's another thing. Like, all Scripture, not just the Bible, but, you know, the Tanakh before that, the sure. Quran after that, um, the teachings of Siddhartha Gautama, yep. the Vedic texts, the Avestas, so yep. on and so forth. Yep. Um, the fact that these things span time, span culture across... Countless people, who knows how many, and who knows how many yet to come, indicates that, yeah, it does speak to something fundamental about, at the very least, the human condition and how we navigate our reality. I grant that fully. Sure, sure. But to then take everything or even the bulk of what comes with Scripture, I find that... Well, against my intuition, against my sensibilities, which that's more innate. That's not something we can really argue on. Yeah. You have yeah. to experience something, or at, in my experience anyways, you have to experience something that shifts your worldview. Yeah. Um, to operate, to create a shift on that level. It's not a shift that can happen through argumentation, or at least I haven't seen it. Yeah, I mean, Paul says that, I mean, probably from the Christian worldview, probably the hinging, the hinging event, if you, I mean, if you want to look at codified scripture as a, uh, as an argument, uh, you know, the codified Bible in mm -hmm. particular, as an argument of whether or not that should be something that's trusted, should be viewed as transcendent, that's a big discussion, but probably the bigger question that probably nails down what the crux of the Christian worldview is about is the person of Jesus, is way more relevant to the discussion because the codification of the New Testament and the Old Testament really ultimately comes from Jesus. You know, Jesus at least codified the Old Testament by what he said and did as, as, as a direct uh, from God piece of work. And then he ordained pe the people that wrote the New Testament were people that he set up to, to, to spread the particular message he wanted to be codified. So the life of, even if you reject the scripture, Christianity hinges a lot more on, in particular, the life of Jesus and the death and resurrection of Jesus. Yeah, very much so. If that's gone, if I didn't believe in the... Although, 
Wasn't the Old Testament basically just the Tanakh? The Old Testament was the Torah, the writings, and the prophets. Yeah. Which is the whole Old Testament. scripture. It's the whole Old Testament that we currently have. But that was in place before Jesus. It was. That's my point. But, but so then how did Jesus codify it? He, he co- Within the Chris, Christian worldview, he codified it by saying it was from God. Okay. So that's where we... Stamp you know, of approval. Yeah, he gave the stamp of approval. I mean, of course, the Jews before that believed it was, it was scripture as well. Right. But the, the current Christian worldview, you know, we access Jesus for that as well. But... Yeah. But then you add you FDA add FDA certified. He's yeah. He's the Faith and Divinity Association. There you go. There you go. We'll refill that. Would actually be a better a better version for the FDA as well. <laughs> but yeah, he. Uh, and then I think if 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 the resurrection of Jesus in particular didn't happen, I think all of Christianity crumbles. Okay. So from my point of view, like right. I would not. I would abandon. I would view the Bible as an extremely influential book, something I should still read if I wanted to be a significant Western thinker. I mean, I've said before uh, for 20 years of my life that if I don't think you're really a serious intellectual unless you've read the Bible and studied it at length, mm-hmm. because it's one of the most influential books in history. It's something that all intellectuals should engage in at the very least, regardless of whether you view the scripture or not. Yeah. It's a it's a formidable and it's not a book. People call it a book. It's a, it's li- a set of books. It's yeah. a set of books from multiple th- or thousands of years yeah. of oral tradition and write, written tradition. But if the if the resurrection disappeared, I would view it as Plato on steroids. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's what yeah. I view it as for the Western world. Right. Um, but I view it something greater because of the belief in the resurrection. Okay. So. So to the second premise of you observe the force, the power that the Bible um, has exhibited over humanity. Yes. Um, my disagreement with that is that I consider it incongruous with objective truth in that objective truth is true whether you believe it or not so no one has to believe anything about god in order for god to be real and it follows that realities about god hold that same immutability so to speak so i in my purview the beliefs of christianity about god are as legitimate as anyone else's. Like, the one guy on the street... Or, you know, I've, over the years, crafted my own particular view on the Creator, and I haven't seen that well-reflected, although there certainly are aspects. Christianity reflects many things that I believe sure, about God. Sure, sure. But, so, but if you're put into that position of, well... Any view can be legitimate to then be in a position of taking on a particular view, taking on a particular scripture, a codified, well, code, a particular code of faith, of belief that doesn't, it just doesn't fit well. Well, unless you're looking at it a different way, I think, uh, theoretically, um, any religion could be correct, and it could be possible that only one person knows the correct religion, and they yeah. died 50 years ago. That could be possible. But I think that Poor old the, the force of a particular document to resonate deeply with people to the point of 
them radically reorienting their entire life, sense of meaning, purpose, existence, belief in an afterlife, worshiping something. I think that when, when something permeates through all of society, almost like a yeast, as a story that resonates with everyone, it at least speaks to the idea that we're all, that what it's saying is real, a lot of people believe by their experiences is real. Mm-hmm. So we're the closest we're ever going to get to knowing what's real is our observational powers, correct? By necessity. Yeah, I mean, we don't have no other way to define what's real other mm-hmm. than what we observe. I think the fact that the, 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 the scripture has become a bit of a meta-narrative in many ways of all codified stories means that at least it resonates what, with what a large diversity of human beings is experiencing and seeing. Yes, I agree with that. Now, let me articulate my um, interpretation on that phenomenon. In that, from my understandings of various scriptures, which are admittedly ephemeral, I sort of hop between and more look at academic interpretations rather than reading it directly and making my own interpretation, which is something I should work on, honestly. Yeah. Um, I do have a Bible here, and I've made a point to get around to reading it, but I've been bad about it, along with a few (laughs) other things that I should be getting around to, but I digress. (laughs) Anyway, um... So, it's my understanding that every scripture has an audience. Sure. And for the most part, in most scriptures, that audience is an ethnic audience. Sure. I find that the Tanakh, the Torah, the Torah and the Old Testament, speaks to the Hebrew people. Mm-hmm. The Quran largely speaks to the Arab people. The Vedic text speaks to the Vedic Aryans. Um, about the only one that doesn't, to my understanding, is, and I don't know if there's a single term, a single name for the corpus of this text, is the teachings of Siddhartha Gautama, which, as many people point out, Buddhism is about the least religion-esque of a religion that can't, some people don't classify it as a religion. Sure. And I've said it even varies by sect. Some really are just not look on life, philosophy. Yeah. Whereas some do take a much more spiritual, um, mystical, and deifying approach to the Buddhic text. Buddha. Sure. Um, there are sects that see the Buddha as the deity. And rejoining, um, what is it, Brahma? Brahman? Yeah. As the fundamental oneness. One of them is the fundamental oneness... And also the name of the creator god in Hinduism, which is a separate entity, but also part of it. And then the other is a name of the priests in Hinduism. I forget which one is which. Anyways, (laughs) going off there. Um, So yeah, there's a fundamental audience in all of those. And I think part of what makes Christianity so pervasive across culture and so popular is that the audience is... More than any else, the poor, who are, by economic necessity, the largest demographic in all cultures. And then the second thing that makes Christianity successful across cultures is evangelism. And this is, this is not my own... The, that previous argument was largely my own speculation and interpretation. Sure. Although I'll argue it's well-founded. This one is in the historical record. 
because we've had missions go to the New World and go to East Asia. For a time, Christianity was immensely popular in Japan and Korea, and we've seen it have great success in the New World, the Americas, and more recently in Africa as mission, you know, some, it wasn't like, what was it? When was, when was that phase where there was like, everyone was taking a mission trip to Africa? Yeah, I don't my, know. My, aunt, yeah. my uncle did it. Um, some time ago, went to Zimbabwe, brought back a really good beer. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, but um, what happens is, is these cultures are in some either violent or oppressive system, and that's the way of things. That's the lifestyle. There's no alternative for you. But and that then Christianity comes in and says, "Hey, I got an alternative." You don't like your lord and master? I got a better lord and master. You don't like ritual annual warfare? Well, my god says, thou shalt not kill, which is, you know, prone to some translation issues, which have been spoken yeah. on by other people. But point is, is, like, they're living, the bulk of people are living in some miserable circumstance, often because it's to the benefit of an existing power structure. Which, an unjust power structure. An unjust often. power structure, often. Yeah. And gives them a way out. Well, it doesn't though. That's what's interesting is that I think that I think that what you're saying actually probably speaks to the meta narrative aspect more. Because okay. here's why: because there's three things, components of what you just said. Is one, um, the fact that people leave their homeland to go to a more oppressed place and not to conquest. But to <laughs> that's but, a bold take. Well, it's it, it's not it's, always it's not, not always, always true. No. Yeah, it's not always true. And I, I would say probably the majority of the missionary movements in history, despite people's popular notion of of like the Native American oppression with the Puritans and some of these other examples, or the Spanish Inquisition, or or other things, the majority of the missions that exist in the world today and in history have been. People going into remote areas and sharing, yes, sharing the message of Jesus, but also uh, doing a lot of benevolent acts. And I think it speaks to the movement because I think the idea that God seeks out creation is a part of what's attractive to people that are in oppression. And two, the fact that the the they're that they find comfort in Christ over the long term, even when the oppression continues. Means that there's something more to it than the temporary thrill of, yeah, I was introduced to this new imaginary character that is going to, even though the oppression is going to continue for another hundred years, I now have a sense of meaning and purpose and an ultimate redemption to a resurrection from the dead to eternal life. You know, and and so like, yeah, the fantasy is attractive, I agree, but it's still... It's still hard to sell someone on a fantasy that you don't, in some sense, feel is real. No, you do feel it's real. Yeah, that's, you do feel it's real. That's certainly a motivation yeah. for why people went on the, those missions. There were other motivations throughout history. and Oh, there, there were imperialistic movements that used Christianity as their... I'm not gonna. Yes. I'm definitely not going to downplay that that's a reality in, in the colonization of America and in many other places. But, you know, the fact that people felt it was real and believed it was real and believed they were doing genuine good. Yeah, I'll argue, I will agree that that speaks to a spiritual reality. But I won't agree that the fact that it speaks to a spiritual reality does not mean that spiritual reality is one 
that is well articulated by scripture. Um, well, that, do you mean that it isn't articulated by scripture or that it is, that, that spiritual reality is very well articulated in scripture, but, or are you saying that it's not necessarily to be trusted? I'm saying it's not necessarily to be trusted. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. Cause we, that we're arguing the veracity of the scripture then. Yeah. Is the scripture true or not Which, true? That's, I mean, well, that if you're going to use scripture as a foundation of faith, arguing the veracity of scripture is, in my purview, a legitimate thing to do. It is. If, if God actually wrote the scripture directly and just delivered it to, through an angel to all of us. As is argued in Islam. Is argued in Islam and in, in Joseph Smith's mythology. Yes. Um, the... Even then, calling it mythology, isolating your Mormon. I did. Audience. I did. I'm I'm, I'm anti Mormon mythology. You can believe. So I can if I want to. Yeah. So, but if even if God did deliver a codified book in a particular language in a particular time that was supposed to reveal all the things we need to know, um, proving its veracity would be impossible. Yeah. Well, I mean, and part of my issue with scripture is. As I've spoken on already, the fallibility of language. That scripture is necessarily language, and language is necessarily flawed. means that scripture is necessarily flawed. Yeah, but perhaps perhaps the reading of scripture is only really... um, Perhaps the reading of scripture is something deeper than, like, the reading of other books. Fair enough. I mean, it might be something that's... I should take the Bible to the coffee house. I go to the coffee house. I used to bring... A book with me. I just finished a book on a case study on the Mistassini Inu and researchers' participant observation among them. And, well, I finished that book. I don't have another book, but I got a Bible right there. I should bring the Bible and start reading the Bible on my weekends. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't see any hesitation to... I mean, the, I, I... You know th- what I want? I want... Because the last time I tried to read the Bible, I really felt like I needed a red pen... To start making annotations of like where I saw cultural parallels and overlaps between things I learned in history. You should. Yeah, I would be intrigued to hear. What Some people say that's heresy. Writing in your Bible? Writing in your Bible that something is not divine revelation. Well, you can you can think something's divine or not divine. That's up to you. I don't, I don't call it heresy. I mean, the thought that it's not divine revelation might be as much heresy as writing it. Oh, no. <laughs> If it, if it were wrong to not, go. if you call heresy not thinking divine revelation is divine. Well, then doesn't then, that make, if, if we take that as truth, doesn't right. that make my notion that doubt is a spiritual endeavor and a spiritual obligation, isn't that a heretical position to take? No, I, I think that, because you're talking about intellectual humility, I think you're using the word doubt. I'm not sure I would use the word doubt for what you're describing. But. I, well, I experience it as doubt. Yeah, uh, do you think there's a difference between doubt and skepticism? Yes, in that a skeptic is very often confident in their doubt. And isn't that what you're exercising? Okay, I'll argue doubt... mm, No. Okay. I'm having confidence in the legitimacy of the act of doubt, not in any instance of doubt. And the motivation for your doubt is humility. Yes. And you're doubting... you're, You're specifically doubting... That what you conceive of to be true might be wrong. I think a skeptic is one who takes empiricism and Occam's razor to the extreme. Like, that is their scripture. I see what you're saying. And, well, in some ways, it's oxymor- It's contradictory, oxymoronic. 
the skeptic position in that they demand the simplest explanation possible and will only accept what has substantiating evidence, but they intrinsically prioritize empiricism over all other worldviews when that position is not substantiated. It's taken for granted. Yeah, so, so would there ever be anything you would settle on as I'm convinced? Yes. Okay, and how do you arrive at that? Revelation. And, revelation. And so at that point, doubt is no longer in that particular area, a major part of what you're, you're experiencing. It is a major part, but it changes. Okay. I stop doubting the Boolean manifestation of that reality, the yes or no. Right, right. But then the qualitative aspects of that reality um doubt still holds presence and i think there's still legitimate in legitimacy in doubting the revelation itself not for trying to well yes in trying to prove it false but having this fundamental awareness that you're not going to do that so 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 so, let me me, do let me finish yeah yeah um i i understand it sounded like i was finished i did come to sort of conclusion there but one thing i want to add on is that it's, it, again, it comes back to humility, and doubting the revelation is not so much in the pursuit of trying to conspire against my own belief in God, but trying to conspire against my belief in myself, and right. further exploring the fallibility of my awareness. You're not questioning, correct me if I'm wrong, you're not questioning really the revelation of God. You're questioning your ability to accurately interpret and receive that revelation. Um, I am questioning my ability to accurately interpret and receive the revelation. I do make a point to question the revelation itself, but more as an intellectual exercise rather okay. than thinking that I'm actually pursuing a truth in doing that. So think about these notions. So just a, a series of questions um, to, to, so I can understand your concept of conviction. Mm-hmm. So question one, do you have a strong belief that Muhammad actually did have an angel appear to him and give him the Quran? No. So you, on a scale from one to ten, how much do you believe that? Ten being I fully believe that. Um, I'll give it a generous two. Okay. Um, on a scale from... 1 to 10, how do you feel about Joseph Smith and the Book of Mormon? I'll give that a generous 1. Okay. I'm avoiding 0 on principle here. I'm I understand that. I gave, you, I gave you 1 to 10. I God, gave you 1 to 10. This I'll is, give you 0 to 10 because you seem to be fixated on 0. This is entirely on the pre- my existing premise that God um, reveals himself to different people in different ways. And right. I, I will invite the possibility that God reveals himself to the Prophet Muhammad and to Joseph Smith in that way. Um. On the notion of if those scriptures in any capacity present themselves as the be-all, end-all, and the absolute truth. I put that as a zero. Okay. So now go to the the Bible as a, as a book mm-hmm. on a scale from 1 to 10 of that being from God. Um, where would you put yourself on a scale from 1 to 10 there? Uh, hmm. For the Bible, I don't think I can because it presents itself, again, not as a single book. It presents itself as a series. I'd have to... Revelation in Scripture comes through prophets. Okay. And I'd have to put it on the evaluation of each and every prophet. Okay. Um, with regards to, say, Jesus, which is, I think we can agree is the main figure of the Bible overall. Sure. Um, 
I'd again put it like a two. I do agree that the conviction of overcoming death is perhaps the most critical critical part of, well, at least the New Testament. Sure. Um, I'm not convinced it happened, and if it if you could convince if someone could convince me of that, or if if I do start to read the Bible here and I become convinced of that. Um, it would probably be enough to make me a Christian and observe scripture religiously. Sure. But I still would not take it as the absolute truth for all of reality. Sure. I would take it as a truth that I am meant to experience. Okay. Well, obviously there's realities outside the human experience. Anyway. Very much so. I don't know that I'll ever know God's reality. No, and you, you can't. Know, and that's, from from his again, perspective. That's something so to speak. I spoke to in saying that even though it's impossible, it's still worth trying because it's it's an expression of your desire to understand and to have that relationship, is to pursue those things that you know you can't have and aren't even trying to have. Right. You're just you're pursuing for the, the journey for the sake of the journey. The journey is the destination. It's not about where you're getting to because you know you're not going to get there. You're walking to walk. You're walking for the exercise. Sure. Sure. Cool. Well, we hit a lot of different topics. We did stick at least in 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 the manner of a sine curve. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Some, somewhere around the idea of belief and faith or knowledge and conviction. We did hit a lot of different topics. Um yeah, so I just want to thank you. I think we've hit enough for the t- today anyway, and yeah. maybe we'll do another podcast on another topic later. So, thank you. And it was a good time. Yeah, it was a good time. We are now signing out. Glamorous. <laughs>